All right, guys, welcome. We're continuing our study through the book of Genesis this morning. So if you want to flip open your Bible to Genesis chapters 2 and 3, that's kind of where we're going to land. And uh, we're basically entering into this tension in the book of Genesis that I think all of us feel within ourselves. And I was reminded of this last Sunday night. My wife and I went to a Ben Folds concert at Orchestra Hall. And Ben Folds was talking about a song that he wrote called Capable of Anything and sort of this wrestling that he's had his whole life that I could relate to. And he's saying when he was a kid, people used to tell him, Ben, you're capable of anything. And what they meant is you could be the president of the United States or you could be an astronaut or you could write a beautiful symphony. And he thought to himself, that's just not true. I'm not capable of anything in that sense. And so he sort of wrote this song, Capable of Anything, to mock that whole idea a little bit and said, there is a sense in which I'm capable of anything and that's that I'm capable of doing anything horrible. I'm capable of so much corruption. And so what we should really be patting ourselves on the back for is not that we're capable of doing anything good, but that we're capable of doing anything bad and we don't do all the bad things that we want to do. And I was thinking about that and I'm thinking, you know, both are true. Mozart and Hitler, both humans. One did amazing things with his life and the other did a lot of terrible things. And we're constantly asking ourselves the question, how can people who are capable of so much good also be capable of so much evil? And we get some solid answers as we go to the beginning of the Bible. And so what we're actually going to do is we're going to do two sermons in one. Not twice the length of a normal sermon, but two sermons in one. And we're going to see why we're capable of so much good, but also capable of so much evil. And so the first big idea is that in Eden, everything was perfect. God created the world good. That's what we saw in Genesis 1. And so there's three ways in which everything was perfect that we see in Genesis chapter 2. The first one is that work was purposeful. Chapter 2, starting with verse 8. Chapter 2, starting with verse 8, says this. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now skipping ahead to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And so what we see here is there's this cooperation between God and man from the very beginning. And God's contribution is he makes everything, including mankind. He makes the trees, he makes the animals, He makes everything there is, and we call everything that God has made nature. And then he tells Adam that what he wants mankind to do is he wants mankind to work and keep what he has made. And what we human beings have been doing since this time is we've been taking 
what God has made, and we have made other things. And so if what God has made is called nature, what we do with what God has made is called culture. So we take what God has made and we cultivate it. We work with it. And so what God designed from the very beginning is that mankind and he would have this partnership where he contributed his part and we contributed our part. And what we tend to think as humans is we tend to think that God is the one who sort of does all of the work and we sort of just show up and we don't really have this huge part to play. But what's true in Scripture is actually that God has given us substantial responsibility. And in a sense, he's actually depending on us. And we're made to work in this partnership with him. And in working in this partnership with him, we're meant to find the very purpose of our life. Isn't it true that when we have real meaningful work to do, and we accomplish that work, and we do a good job, that we have this sense of purpose. We enjoy it. Now, I was thinking about this not too long ago when I worked on this project with my son, Luke. And so we had like over 100 bags of mulch stacked in our driveway, and I needed his help to be able to spread the mulch to all these different beds all over our yard. And so we didn't have a wheelbarrow, and so we got a sled out, you know, it's Minnesota, and we We're pulling these bags of mulch in a sled, and and actually, the bags of mulch were pretty heavy, and Luke is eight years old, and he's actually a pretty good worker. He kind of comes alive with the blue-collar kind of work, and so he gets outside, and there's some jobs where I'm just like, okay, Luke, you're not actually not that helpful, and I kind of want you to just get out of the way, and and, but with this particular job, I actually felt like I need your help. Like, I'm depending on you, buddy. And he could feel that, and he was sort of coming alive in that and working next to me and working hard. And so we worked hard all day. We spread the mulch into the beds, and then we stood on the back porch, and we looked out, and we were just like, we're meant. We did that. We finished that work, and we accomplished it. And so we worked in partnership together In the yard, we accomplished work and we felt a sense of purpose. We looked at it together and said, that's really good work. And God created mankind to have that kind of relationship with him so that we would find our purpose as we work next to God, cultivating what he has made. And in the Garden of Eden, this was perfect. God had created everything. Mankind was working as farmers and gardeners alongside God. So work was purposeful. Secondly, in the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect because God was trusted. Still in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay, In Eden, God walked with mankind. He walked with Adam and Eve. He walked in the garden, we'll see, in the cool of the day. He had an intimate relationship with him. And and imagine this, he created everything out of nothing. He created man and woman to have a relationship with each other, and he commands them. But the command is 
almost 100% positive, right? He's like, look around at all these trees. You can eat from any tree in the garden. You think thousands upon thousands of trees, all different types of fruit, all different types of delicious fruit. And he says, except for one. The way we picture it is, this was like the tall tree with the biggest, most delicious apples on it. And it was the most appealing tree. That's not the picture here. The picture is actually that all of the good trees were surrounding this one tree. And the one tree, was there's really nothing special about it. And God just tells them, just trust me. Don't eat from it. And so what they do is they actually, for a short time, trust him. See, God made us to live in this trusting relationship with him. And from the very beginning, there have been, has been no legitimate reason to not trust God. And down to this very day, there's no legitimate reason to not trust God. He is 100% trustworthy, 100% good on his promises, and 100% good to the people that he has created. Here's what the situation's like. Imagine... That out of nowhere, your boss, super wealthy guy, says, I want to send you on an all-expenses-paid vacation for a month, wherever you want to go, and I'm just going to give you my credit card, and you can buy whatever you want, go wherever you want, and do whatever you want. And in fact, I also have a a fleet of sports cars in this massive garage, and you can take any of the cars that you want to. I have over 100 cars, and I've got you know, a Maserati, I've got a Lamborghini, I've got a nice Escalade SUV. You can take any of the cars that you want to take, just don't take the 97 Corvette. Okay? I don't think any of us would think, in that scenario, the 97 Corvette's the best car, that's why he doesn't want me to take it. We would just be like, sweet! All expense paid trip. I can take any car that I want to take. We would see our boss as super generous and good. And we would see no reason not to trust his prohibition. We would probably think, oh, the engine's about to go out. Or the car needs some work done on it. We wouldn't think something negative. And in the same way, we shouldn't think anything negative about God. There is literally no reason not to trust him. He has given them every reason to trust him. And in Eden, for a short time, Adam and Eve were totally satisfied because they just trusted God's goodness. Okay, so Eden was perfect because work was purposeful. God was trusted. And thirdly, marriage was intoxicating. Okay, starting with verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Can I get an amen? I will make a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
Here's what's true. The Bible is so far from being negative about romance and sex and marriage. The Bible is incredibly positive. And we know that because God is the one who designed the whole thing. Put all the different parts of the body on all the different bodies. And had the idea of giving Adam a wife. Adam didn't think to himself, oh, I'd really like to have a partner to live life with. It was God's idea, which is so interesting because God was walking with Adam in the garden. And God actually goes to Adam and says, it's not good that you should be alone. So there's this sort of funny scene that follows where all the different animals are paraded in front of Adam. And it's like, porcupine, want to marry that? No, definitely not. You know, rhinoceros, for sure not. Giraffe, too tall. Goes through all the different animals, and it's like a setup. And then God puts Adam to sleep, takes his rib out, and fashions a wife for him. And he wakes up, and he's like, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She's amazing. And they're standing in front of each other, and you have this beautiful scene where they are naked, which means, yes, physically naked, but they fully see one another, and they are delighting in one another. In other words, there's no criticism. There's no cynicism. They are intoxicated by their relationship with each other. You know, one of the most famous scenes in a movie in recent times, okay, 1996, Jerry Maguire, remember this, this scene where Jerry Maguire says, well, Tom Cruise's character says to Renee Zell- Zellweger, he says, you complete me. Remember that? And then she says, shut up. Just shut up. You had me at hello. Do you know they got that from Genesis? That's essentially what Adam is saying to Eve. He's saying, you complete me. And, and from that time, men and women have been longing for this relationship that would complete them. This person, we call it a soulmate. And that desire has been placed there by God himself. Because you were not meant to be alone. Not just in relationship with God, but you were meant to have the deepest possible intimacy in human relationship. And God's original design was for this intoxicating marriage relationship, a relationship where two people were without shame. Can you imagine being without shame in a relationship? To fully disclose yourself, to be fully known, and to be fully loved and accepted. That's what we were made for. And yet we know that this is not how the world is. We long for it. There's echoes of Eden in our souls, but this is not how the world is. And we have this deep sense that the world is not as it's supposed to be. Which brings us to our second big idea. And that's that east of Eden, where God banished Adam and Eve after they sinned, everything is broken. There's three ways that everything is broken. The first one 
is foundational, and it's that God is dethroned. Okay, look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Okay, when I say that God is dethroned, I don't mean that by our own willful rebellion that we can take God off the throne. You know, you can no more take God off the throne by your rebellion than you can stop the earth from spinning by taking a shovel and sticking it into the ground. It's just not going to work. God is the king of the universe. When I say that God is dethroned, what I mean is that in our sinfulness, we have had the audacity to think that we would be a better king of the universe than God himself. That we would be better at running our lives than God is at running our lives. And here's how this happened then. And by the way, I think we'll be able to see a lot of ourselves in this. Satan comes to Eve and he says, did God actually say? And then he slips a big lie in there. You can't eat of any tree in the garden. God didn't say that. What did God say? You can eat from any tree in the garden except for one. And so he begins to introduce this idea to Eve that God is not generous and good, but that he's actually kind of stingy. And then Eve slips in a lie into her response. She says, no, 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 he didn't say that. He said we could eat from any tree, but we can't eat from that one and we can't touch it or we'll die. God didn't say they couldn't touch it. You know, they could go and grab the fruit and throw it up against other trees. They could have played catch with it. They could have done whatever they want with it. So she adds some, a little bit of legalism. So what's beginning to come into her mind is that God is more stingy than is actually true. That he's not generous, that he's not good, that he's not loving, that he doesn't have their best intention at heart. And then, at, and then Satan sees that he's got a little hook in her. And so he says, you won't die. This is the first doctrine of Scripture that is undermined. The doctrine of God's judgment. And down to this very day, you can spot a false church when the doctrine of judgment is left out. God did really say that when you eat the fruit, you will die. And all of us, without exception, 
will stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account for everything that we do in our lives. God is the judge of all the earth, and he has the right to give, and he has the right to take away. He's the king. God did really say that you will die. And then Satan introduces another lie. He says, the truth is, if you eat from the tree, you're going to be like God. We love that. We don't just want to be like God. We think that we would do a better job running our lives and running the universe than he is doing and has done, which, if you think about it, is absolutely ridiculous. I was reminded of this ridiculousness when I was on a daddy date with my oldest daughter, Emma, and we were at McDonald's at just before 7 o'clock in the morning, which is a great time to be at McDonald's because there's these groups of 80-year-old guys sitting around talking about what they would do if they were in charge. And so there were these three 80-year-old guys sitting next to me, and I heard one of them say, if I were the president of the United States, I'm like, oh, this is going to be so good, right? So I'm listening in as, as Emma's, you know, eating her sausage, egg, and cheese biscuit, and I'm drinking my coffee. And this guy says, you know, if I were president of the United States, you, know, you see all these taxes on, on alcohol, and there's so much advertising for alcohol, and the government's making a ton of money off that. So he's like, I would make all the illegal drugs legal, and I'd put taxes on those. And I'd make prostitution legal, and I'd put taxes on those. And one of his buddies chimes in and says, that'd be great, prostitution legal. You know, and I'm like, you guys would be horrible <laughs> at running this country. Like, whatever you think about the President of the United States, he's doing a better job than these guys would do. Right? And in their McDonald's, you know, induced coma... At 6 o'clock in the morning, they think that they would be awesome at running the United States of America. And in our sin-induced coma, we think that we would be awesome at running our lives. We think that if we dethroned God and we took his place, that everything would go way better. And the truth is... Everything goes to hell. Because to disconnect yourself from God is to disconnect yourself from the very source of life. And so it follows that when God is dethroned, marriage is fractured. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So here's the first consequence of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, of their choice to believe the lie of Satan and to eat the fruit that God had told them not to eat is that their relationship is broken. The first thing they do is they make themselves Lloyd Claus. They hide from each other. They try to hide 
their shame and their moral brokenness with clothing. And so, just a short time ago, their marriage was intoxicating because they were naked and without shame. And now they are filled with shame. And so not only do they try to hide from God, they hide from each other. And we live in this world where marriages are broken and marriages are fractured and marriages are falling apart. And many of us are from families where there's been divorce and there's been adultery and there's been distance. And we have experienced firsthand what it's like to be close to a marriage that is less than what God created it to be. And it is devastating to be in a marriage like that. And it is devastating to be a child who is in a family where that marriage relationship's broken. And so here's what we try to do. We try to develop social programs, and, and we have lists of things to do, and, and let's go on a date night, and let's get some counseling, and, and let's uh, change our habits, and let's make sure that we're good listeners, and let's make sure that we prioritize these certain things, or that you go through this certain process so that you make sure that you marry the right person. And all of those things are great. But the problem is they don't get to the root issue. What you have to see is that the fracture in the marriage relationship, in the horizontal relationship, is the result of brokenness with God. So here's what we're, we're doing. It's like if your car ran out of gas and you're on the side of the road and you flip open the hood and you make some accurate observations the pistons aren't moving. The carburetor's not working. The transmission's not working. The, and you make all these accurate observations about your car. There's a lot of things that aren't working. And so you get a wrench out and you get in there and you start trying to fix the problem. Well, the problem is all of those things aren't working because the car doesn't have any gas in it. And so until you put gas in the car, none of the parts are going to move properly and the car is not going to work. And likewise, in the fractured marriages in our country and in this world, since the Garden of Eden, you can't fix them by working just on the horizontal relationship. Because the brokenness is first and foremost between the people in that marriage and God. And so the shame, the moral guilt, and that disconnect from God has to be dealt with first because it's the root issue. The fracture was caused by that brokenness. So east of Eden... God is dethroned, marriage is fractured, and work is meaningless. Verse 17, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. 
till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So it used to be that work was purposeful, it was meaningful, it was done in partnership with God, and it was enjoyable. But now, work is painful, and work is hard. Partly because work is necessary, right? It's like by the sweat of your brow, you're going to earn your bread. And so part of the reason that we participate in the workforce is because we've got to feed ourselves and we've got to feed our families. So there's this necessity to it. Even if I don't like my job, I'm going to keep on working because I have to work to feed my family, which is a noble thing. But here's what you'll experience. Your job will be less than satisfying time and time again. Even if you switch jobs, there's going to be pain in it. Even if you don't have a blue-collar job, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. You're going to have relationships with your coworkers that are difficult. And you're going to have a lot of days, frankly, that you just don't want to get up and go to work. And one of the primary reasons for that reality is that our work has been disconnected from its purpose. Okay, so here's where your work will lead. And Solomon hits this well in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says that work feels meaningless because in the end, all of us die. And our work, our life's work, the things that feel so important to us now, will die with us. And so we can get this feeling of, I get up day after day, I work, I work, I work, I work, I work for what? Where is it going? Because in the end, I'm going to die and I'm going to be buried six feet under and no one is going to remember all of this labor that I put in. And so here's the difference. Okay, Think about this illustration. Before the fall, work was like this. Okay, Imagine that there's a guy working at a rock quarry and you see him and he's still doing the heavy lifting but he's got a smile on his face. You're like, he's working in a rock quarry. Why is he so happy about working in a rock quarry? And he looks at you and he says, I'm happy because I'm building a cathedral. In other words, he's able to clearly see the purpose for which he's working. But now, here's what it feels like. Same guy in the rock quarry. Frown on his face, sweat dripping down his face, painful toil, lifting these huge rocks up and walking. And you just hear him saying, rocks, rocks, rocks. All I do is lift rocks. Gotta feed my family. Rocks, rocks, rocks. All I do is lift rocks. Because when you're disconnected from God, you're disconnected from the purpose of your life. And so it's so difficult to see where you're going and why you're doing what you're doing. And when you actually begin to think about it, 
you begin to feel that everything that you do is meaningless and going nowhere. Okay, so here's the reality that we're in. We long to be back in Eden where everything is perfect. But we know that we live east of Eden where the world is broken. But God, even in these early chapters of the Bible, gives us a glimmer of hope. It may not be the solution that we immediately think of, but his solution is that we would be connected in relationship with God. That we would be back in fellowship with him and trusting him. And so he gives us two beautiful reasons that we can trust him. In the first chapters of the Bible, the first one is he promises that the woman's offspring will crush Satan. Chapter 3, verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God is saying this to Satan as part of his curse. He says, you might have gotten the woman this time. You might have caused her to trust in you and to disbelieve in me. But here's what's going to happen. After many generations the woman's offspring is going to give birth to an invincible hero. And we know that hero's name. His name is Jesus. And Jesus is not going to believe the lie of the serpent. But he's going to walk in truth. And here's what he's going to do. On the cross, he is going to crush Satan's head. He is going to win the victory. He is going to clothe Close the liar's mouth. And he is going to declare to you that the victory is won. Isn't that amazing? As early as Genesis, this is God's first response to the fall. Before the curse even falls on man and woman, he promises them that he will get the last word. And he has gotten the last word through Jesus and his victory on the cross. And the second thing that God promises, is that he will pay for sin. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Well, what do we know must happen for the garments of skins to be available? An animal must die. And so God sets this precedent that's true throughout the entire Bible at the very beginning of the story that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so he kills an animal. Adam and Eve, when they ate the fruit, they deserved to die immediately on the spot. And they did in a sense. They died spiritually. They died relationally. And they would, in fact, one day die physically. But what God is saying is that I am not just a God of goodness, I'm a God of grace. And there is going to be a substitute for you. And Jesus would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he would clothe us, not in skins, but in his righteousness, so that if we believe in him, we would have eternal life. And so you want to go back 
You want to experience Eden in your soul. Believe in Jesus. Come back to relationship with God. Say, God, I'm tired of calling you a liar. I'm tired of not trusting in you. I'm tired of believing the lies of Satan. And instead, I want to know you. I want to trust you. And you will begin to experience eternal life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are here, that you're present with us, that you love us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these opening chapters of the Bible where we get a picture of the majesty and the glory of God. And God, we get a a picture of your intention for us, your love for us, your generosity toward us. And, And we are sorry that like our first parents, like Adam and Eve, we have failed to trust in you. We've believed lies over and over again. And And we've experienced consequences for that. And so we come back to you. We ask that you would would forgive us. That you would help us to not believe these lies, but to walk faithfully with you. In Jesus' name, amen.